JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 146, and it's part four of our Bay of Pigs series. We're now pivoting to the story of the invasion itself, an epic event that changed the trajectory of Cuba, and it changed the course of geopolitical politics around the world. You know, a few episodes back, I talked about life being a game of inches. Nowhere is that more evident than in the middle of an armed conflict. When you're in one, life really is a game of inches. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 146 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. President Kennedy had not given his final approval, but the logistics of the Bay of Pigs mission had to move forward. And at this point, there were still a lot of moving parts. So on March 28th, two of the mission ships, one named the Blogger and the second named the Barbara J, pulled anchor and left Key West. They were headed to Puerto Cabezas, which is a port city in Nicaragua, and a favorable launch location for the mission. They would sail south around the western end of Cuba and head to Puerto Cabezas. Located there was the CIA mission staging location in a runway, all known as Happy Valley. Remember, the mission had to be launched from somewhere other than United States soil as part of the overall concept of plausible deniability. There were, of course, all the legal reasons for this, too. Reasons that were closely related, including violation of the Neutrality Act if the mission was technically launched from the United States. (laughs) Don't snicker. I'm not a lawyer, but as I do sometimes say on this show, I play one on TV occasionally. And I, too, am sure that the Neutrality Act got violated here, somehow and some way. But appearances are what plausible deniability is all about, right? (laughs) Regardless, the bottom line is that Puerto Cabezas was located in another friendly Central American country, a country supportive 
of the CIA's and America's secret operations against Cuba. And remember, it was essential that the launch location be on the Caribbean side of Central America. This Nicaraguan city would now act as the port and the airstrip location from which to launch both the air attack and the amphibious invasion of Cuba. If you're unfamiliar with Central America, take a look at a regional map of the Caribbean. It all makes sense when you do that. In the center of Central America, there are northern points where Nicaragua and Guatemala come together and sort of jut out into the Caribbean toward Cuba. Puerto Cabezas is almost a straight shot to the Bay of Pigs from there. And so, the location minimizes flight time over water and between launch and mission points over Cuba. Given the somewhat limited flight range of the B-26 bombers, this was an important consideration. To refresh our memory, the main Guatemalan training camp at Retal Julio and the nearby airstrip were situated in the mountainous terrain that is near the Pacific coastline on the southern side of Guatemala. But from there, logistics were, by definition, much more complicated in terms of getting to Cuba and returning. From there, to launch from the Guatemalan facility, you would have to fly clear across the interior of Guatemala from south to north and then still have a longer flight over the Caribbean Sea in order to get to Cuba. A major consideration and issue in determining the tactical locations from which the operation would be launched. And one major consideration related to the range of the B-26 tactical bombers that were used in the operation, and how far they could fly. That is, how far they could fly in relation to a trip to Cuba and then a return to base without refueling. And of course, you had to load men on a war transport ship headed for Cuba. And that was another function that could not be done from the Guatemalan training camps located at Reto Julio, which again was on the southern or Pacific side of Central America. From there, the only way to get a ship into the Caribbean is through the Panama Canal or all the way around South America. Obviously, neither of those alternatives were a viable option for this kind of mission. The original invasion date was set for April 5, 1961, but by the time these two CIA ships set sail from Key West on their way to Puerto Cabezas, it was clear that this invasion date was not feasible. President Kennedy would soon approve a revised invasion date of two weeks later on April 17, 1961. On April 8th, Jacob Esterline, a.k.a. Jake Engler, and Jack Hawkins, the two CIA subcommanders most directly in charge of the invasion planning, went to see Richard Bissell at his home in northwest Washington, D.C., and they informed him that they both wanted to resign. Their primary concerns were the changes that the White House had just ordered in the operation, making it far less likely to succeed. They would tell Bissell that, by pruning away at the operation, the politicians were making it technically impossible to win. Bissell couldn't believe that they were doing this at this grave moment, but he asked them to stay on, arguing that the invasion was going to go forward, with or without them. Reluctantly, these men agreed to Bissell's request, but it was a hard pill to swallow, knowing that there was now 
a great chance in their mind that the mission would fail. The two-week delay from April 5th to April 17th was not favorable when it came to troop morale as well. There was considerable anger and frustration already amongst the troops, and it's true that in the previous January, almost 250 Cubans in Guatemala had mutinied. At the end of the day, most of them came back to the camps, but some were actually placed in makeshift prisons somewhere in the jungles of Guatemala. The attempt to keep everything as secret as possible was palpable. But even so, there were some obvious errors in judgment here. Twenty men that had been training in the camps had been released, and these men were left on their own reconnaissance to go back to Miami and tell everyone about the details of the mission. And many of them did just that. And rumors already circulating in Miami began to accelerate. There's no doubt that the Guatemalan training sites became more publicized, too, as time went on. Whereas training sites in New Orleans, Miami, Washington, and Vicas Island, which is east of Puerto Rico, were all kept more clandestine and secret other locations as well, more secret than the Guatemalan camp. It turned out that Guatemala, as far away as it was from the United States and away from the eyes of most of the world, became anything but a secret to the outside world. Maybe that was because it was located on a highly trafficked road and next to a passenger railroad, a railroad where passenger cars filled with Guatemalans often stopped and observe the training activities. Do you think that might have had something to do with it? In this period of readiness, in the weeks leading up to the invasion date, men and materials would be picked up and transported from various locations, including from New Orleans, and they were taken to Puerto Cabezas. The main invasion force was flown from Guatemala to Puerto Cabezas as well, and readied for transport. Everything was converging, planes, men, and munitions and materials, all at Puerto Cabeza in nearby Happy Valley, all converging together before all of these essential elements would make their final trek to the rendezvous point in the middle of the Caribbean Sea, some 40 miles south of Cuba. And then, finally, much of that same armada would from there go the rest of the way to the Bay of Pigs. It was said that Luis Somoza, the Nicaraguan dictator, came to the dock to say goodbye to the Cuban exile forces as they readied to launch the invasion. Bring me a couple of hairs from Castro's beard, he reportedly told them. In general, there was relatively poor security precautions taken by the CIA, and it was nowhere more apparent than when the CIA violated its own need-to-know policy with the members of the brigade. And at the end of the day, Cubans in Miami, including Castro's spies, which were all over the city at that time, began to learn important aspects related to the plan's operational details. There are many examples of letters being sent from trainees to relatives back in America that included details about the impending attack. In one such famous Miami moment, a Miami citizen overheard a CIA case officer briefing Cubans in a motel and relayed this information to the FBI. And if you can believe it, resistance groups in Cuba, the ones 
that were supposed to be lighting the fire of the uprising at the moment of the invasion did not learn the time of the invasion beforehand, and they were as surprised as the rest of the country. But this lack of pre-communication essentially undercut the chances of a mass uprising that would successfully support the invasion. Again, a security call, but a true catch-22 for the CIA that did them no favors. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, there were highly capable and well-respected reporters that learned of the invasion plans independently of one another and compiled fairly complete and accurate stories for national publication, and who initially postponed release of their news stories after direct White House appeals. Taz Zizolk, the New York Times reporter, was one that we mentioned earlier, and another is Carl Meyer. Unfortunately, Sazolk reneged and eventually did publish the story before the invasion, with the story appearing in the New York Times on April 7th. And this was much to President Kennedy's chagrin. But to be fair, others had published first, and the cat was already out of the bag, so to speak. Kennedy would declare, with some disgust, that all you have to do is read the papers to find out about the invasion. CBS would also report the same, and precursing all of this was a March story entitled The Big Buildup to Overthrow Castro, which was featured in U.S. News and World Report. The Kabuki Theater regarding disclosure didn't stop there. Adlai Stevenson was the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, and with regards to the Bay of Pigs, he was left in the dark almost up to the very point of the invasion. He would later tell Pierre Salinger, who was Kennedy's press secretary, that the Bay of Pigs had given him the most humiliating experience of his years in public service. Clayton Fritchie was Stevenson's public relations advisor and a weathered political hand from Washington. Fritchie had been following the stories about Cuba in the New York Times, and he placed some phone calls to cronies in the press, and he became convinced that a major operation was about to be pulled off. One evening, about two weeks before the invasion, he asked Stevenson, over cocktails, whether the ambassador had been holding out on him about Cuba. Fritchie thought his boss might have been secretly informed of whatever was impending. Stevenson said he knew nothing. He expressed concern about Fritchie's concern. The Cubans had been pressing hard for a UN debate about sabotage and other aggressions which they charged had American backing. Stevenson needed to know the facts so that he could best defend the U.S. You're not pulling my leg, are you? Fritchie persisted. I understand that there are things you can't discuss with anybody. Stevenson assured him again that he had no information, and he then authorized Fritchie to nose around. Fritchie decided to question Arthur Schlesinger because the historian was a longtime friend who used to write campaign speeches for the ex-candidate Stevenson. By sheer luck, Schlesinger turned out to be one of the very select few in the White House who was knowledgeable about the invasion. What the hell is going on down there? Fritchie asked. Don't you think that the permanent representative to the United Nations should know something about this? Schlesinger said he would see what he could do to get Stevenson briefed. 
Although I think it's ironic, if not downright humorous, that 1,500 Cubans sitting in the jungles of Guatemala and a slew of their relatives back in Miami knew more about the invasion plan than Stevenson did. It was just another example of ill coordination that was present in the administration at that moment. And the paranoia at the CIA about keeping the plan as secret as possible despite the apparent absurdity of it at that point in time. And again, Castro himself surely learned the date of the invasion from his chief ally in the Kremlin, Nikita Khrushchev. And how do we know that? Well, recall again a story that I told on an earlier episode. The cable that was intercepted by the CIA in early April 1961, where the Soviet embassy in Mexico informed its home office in Moscow that the invasion would take place on April 17th. And they were spot on. Despite knowing that these communications had taken place, there was no change in the date of the invasion by the CIA. And at this point, the invasion was no surprise, (laughs) whether it was to take place at night or not. I'll back up the tape for just a minute and talk about the government in exile. You see, training of the military forces moved inexorably forward during 1960 and into early 1961. But E. Howard Hunt was having no success in getting the Frente, the supposed unified front of Cuban political leaders, all on the same page. And that was sending shockwaves through all the safe houses in Miami, the camps in Guatemala, in the hallways of Washington. Hunt was running out of time to get this done, and the U.S. was not going to invade without a unified group of Cuban leaders who would step in and be the new government and cooperate and conform once the invasion occurred, and doing so when the country was in that critical moment of being secured and in that uber-critical moment of inviting the U.S. back in to finish the job. And to complicate matters, the Kennedy men wanted their own man in the mix, a political leader that they trusted to help run Cuba, not just those chosen by Howard Hunt and the crew at the CIA. It was, I like to say, it was like herding cats. What happened next would sideline Hunt and minimize his role and relegate him simply and essentially to a public relations and propaganda man as they headed into this last phase before the invasion. The Kennedy administration continued to push for the inclusion of Manuel Ray in any post-Castro government. Ray had served as Castro's sabotage expert, but having turned against Fidel. Right now, Ray represented the liberal point of view, at least as far as Kennedy's people were concerned. Hunt remained violently opposed to him especially after his visit to Base Tracks. That was the name of the Guatemalan training camp. Ray had zero support amongst the brigade, and Hunt warned that if Manuel Ray's Miami group was folded into the Frente, it was entirely possible that they might find themselves with a large Miami political organization and no troops at all. Complicating things was the fact that Frank Bender, the CIA's other point man, could not find a way to get along with the Frente. The enmity was mutual. The Cuban disdain for Bender sank to hatred 
Agency higher-ups lost their patience, too, with Frank Bender, and Hunt himself was said to be skating on thin ice. In the month preceding the invasion, a CIA operative using the pseudonym Jim Noble was dispatched by the senior executives in the CIA to go to Miami and to force the Frente to iron out their differences and make itself into a true government in exile. Noble's solution included Manuel Ray, but probably not of his own making. Hunt and Bender, the old cold warriors, were appalled. CIA machinations had brought Ray and his group to Florida, much in the same way that Manuel Artema had been exfiltrated before him. Once brought into the States, Ray and his people, known as the MRP, maintained that the Castro Revolution had originally been democratic in nature. Although most people would agree that they would have a tough time making the case for mass executions and class warfare as being in any way democratic. But still, Ray argued that if it means to be a leftist, that is to be in favor of all the people and for the welfare of the masses, then I am. (laughs) To that statement, Howard Hunt would tartly note that Fidel Castro himself could not have said it better. Around the time that Noble was dispatched to Miami, Hunt was ordered to Washington for a sit-down with his CIA superiors. Though they were old friends, covert operations deputy Tracy Barnes, along with Barnes' boss, Richard Bissell, put the pressure on Hunt. But Hunt could not, or would not, accept the administration's imposition of Manuel Ray on Frente leadership. Hunt argued that the Americans had already taken everything away from the Cubans. The exiles had submitted to American military planning and political maneuvering, and we've trampled heavily on the pride of men who, in their country, have been distinguished and highly respected citizens. These men realized, he told Bissell, that they were not much more than puppets, but they all understood that the CIA was the only hope for their homeland. Hunt would go on to say that I could not maintain their evaporating good faith while injecting Manuel Ray into the forefront for the exile leadership, in effect making him an equal. While Barnes and Bissell understood, they had no choice in the matter. They said they were sorry, and Howard Hunt was gone from the equation. Noble would have the task of delivering the message to the leaders in Miami. It was a quick two-minute ultimatum, and the document was read by a contract operative. His name was Wells Cart, and he was a man that spoke perfect Spanish, but the words on the page bore little resemblance to polite Castilian. It went something like this. If you don't come out of this meeting with a committee, you just forget the whole fucking business, because we're through. The Frente got the message, and the power play worked. The Frente was finished, and out of its ashes rose the Cuban Revolutionary Council, or CRC, and that would be the group to lead going forward. Kennedy's people got their wish, and Manuel Ray was among its leaders. We know from previous episodes that much of the blame for what happened at the Bay of Pigs invasion lies in Richard Bissell's corner. Bissell would go to the White House and give an update on April 6th, and the president would ask Bissell 
what the latest date was to call off the invasion. It was a president that was still unsure of himself and unsure of whether this mission should be a go or not. Imagine being this close and having the commander-in-chief still unsure. It says a lot about the circumstance. Kennedy would be told that his last chance to say no would be April 16th. Bissell would be back at the White House for his final dog and pony show on April 12th. It was a pivotal meeting at a pivotal moment for Bissell in the Bay of Pigs invasion. At this point, Bissell was full steam ahead. As he briefed the President, the Secretary of State, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and other NSC officials, Bissell did, in his defense, argue for a full-scale air assault on D-Day, warning that an air operation that would begin on D-Day minus two, which was now the plan, and then only having limited airstrikes on the invasion day itself would be a much riskier plan. And that was because destroying Castro's Air Force was critical, not just damaging it, but destroying it with sufficient force that the U.S. could be certain that the Cuban Air Force would not be a decisive factor in establishing and maintaining the beachheads. And finally, it was essential for ensuring logistics flow in establishing that same beachhead, as leaving the merchant ships carrying the cargo and the men exposed from the air would surely accelerate their withdrawal from the area and perhaps prematurely. That's right, these were merchant ships, not Navy ships, as these ships had to penetrate into Cuban waters close to the shore, close up as they delivered men and cargo, at a location well inside the bay at one location and always close to the Cuban shoreline, places where U.S. Navy ships were not permitted to be. We'll tell the story of the CIA's secret Navy in a moment. Before they concluded the April 12th briefing, the president would also learn that the main invasion force had already begun staging operations, and the last vessel would be departing the next day from Puerto Cabezas. Things were in motion. Time was running out to say stop. You might be wondering how it would be remotely possible that the outside world was going to believe a story that there was air cover supporting an amphibious mission, supporting an exile invasion of Cuba, air cover that was simply provided by someone other than the U.S. government. I mean, how could anyone believe that air cover was actually a function of a small group of Cuban exiles with their own offensive air force? That concept is dubious at best, if not completely hilarious. But in typical CIA Bay of Pigs planning fashion, in that era, the CIA had a plan to address that. They would create a ruse that would appear to signal that members of the Cuban Air Force had defected, and it was the defecting Cuban pilots that destroyed Castro's Air Force capability first, as they flew their B-26 bombers out of the country and then north toward the United States. I'll go over more of the details of this air story the defection, in a moment. But before we get there, let's describe the massive flotilla that made up this operation. 
and that includes a massive U.S. naval buildup, as well as the CIA's secret navy of merchant and other ships. As part of the mission, the U.S. military sent 18 destroyer-type vessels into that area of the Caribbean Sea. The military also ordered one jet fighter squadron to hover close to the Guantanamo naval base and a second squadron to do the same near the base in Key West. The Navy would position the carrier Essex, which also carried another jet squadron, and it would be accompanied by seven of the destroyers. All of these U.S. Navy ships positioned under the cover of the idea that they were conducting anti-submarine warfare operations throughout the area southwest of Cuba and in the Gulf of Mexico. And of course, this whole thing had the potential to become a dangerous situation. And so, in one other act of readiness, the Commander-in-Chief of the North American Air Defense Command, or Sink NORAD, took steps to protect Florida in the event that some form of military response from Cuba or Russia or anyone else that might be drawn into the conflict might occur. The Essex would have on board a special crack squadron of A-4 Skyhawk jet attack fighters. And regarding the U.S. naval fleet, even though everyone and their brother knew about the impending invasion, the level of secrecy still required by the Navy participants was high. Fake reports of the ship's movements were to be filed with the Atlantic Fleet Movement Report Center. At the end of March, Rear Admiral John Clark was briefed by Admiral Denny Dennison. What Dennison would tell him is that he was going on a mission as part of a Navy team and that he would be on the carrier Essex. The details then were forthcoming. At the end of this briefing, Clark would say something that sums up very well what most people would say about the entire circumstance of U.S. military involvement in the Bay of Pigs. Clark was a polished senior officer, and he would simply say the following, You mean I am going down there armed to the teeth, but I'm not supposed to do anything? The Essex, along with the destroyers, was to escort five of the merchant ships in the other transport craft, shepherding them until they came close to the rendezvous point, some 40 miles south of the Cuban coast, known as Point Zulu. The destroyers would have their hull numbers painted over, blacked out, and they would all proceed in a predefined sea navigation course that kept them far enough apart from one another that they could not see each other. The Essex and three of the destroyers would hold up south of the rendezvous point, and two destroyers would meet the merchant ships at the rendezvous point and take them the rest of the way up to the point of entering into Cuban waters. And then the merchant ships themselves would go the rest of the way into the Bay of Pigs. And of course, the orders were clear. It was not to be a shot fired by an American force. The Essex started out from Quonset Point in Rhode Island, where it made its way to Norfolk. Admiral Dennison would meet Captain Pete Searcy in Norfolk and deliver the secret orders. Sealed in a brown envelope, there was no discussion, just some verbal direction while handing over the envelope. Admiral Dennison would tell Captain Searcy 
to follow the orders inside. It was top secret. And there were only 13 copies of the order in existence. Take it back to the ship and open it there. In the quiet of his cabin, Captain Searcy would first read the order himself and then invite in a few of his senior officers to brief them. After reading the order together, they all asked the same obvious question. Was the United States going to war in Cuba? The last-minute change of plans to move the invasion to the Bay of Pigs and bring the invasion force in at night created obvious complications. As we mentioned in an earlier episode, the Bay of Pigs has treacherous elements to it. Coral reefs that are razor-sharp and that were also, during the planning period, mistaken for friendlier natural elements such as seaweed. These reefs were so sharp in some areas that they, in fact, penetrated the boots of many men who were forced out of the landing crafts and then had to walk across them. The bay itself is wide and deep. It's about 17 miles inland until you get to the end of the bay, and the bay itself is about 6 miles wide. And it's almost 800 feet deep at points. And that actually created a special problem. It was too deep for the larger ships to drop anchor. And to top all of this off, the invasion force was now landing in the dead of night, without much training to do so, as the decision by President Kennedy was made in March to reduce the noise, so to speak, around the landing. Political noise, that is. This change made the work of the frogmen especially crucial. There would be 12 frogmen in all, two teams of six, one team at each of the two beach landing locations. They were to lead the way, planting markers and surveying the lead-up area to the beach and making sure that the invasion team was able to get ashore and once ashore to help however they could. They would make their way to the beach approach area. The original plan included use of 18-foot catamarans that were outfitted with outboard motors and dropped into the water once the merchant ships got close. But later, the plan would end up having to use other forms of small craft given the terrain around the bay that they encountered. But first, they would have to get there, and, and that would be on one of the merchant ships. Their ride was the Rio Escondido, which was anchored in the Mississippi River in the weeks before the mission, and it would be skippered by one of the CIA's trusted contract captains. Not only was the Rio Escondido carrying the frogmen, but it also had aboard the communication van that, according to the plan, was to be the command lifeline between the brigade and Washington. The Rio Escondido also carried 54,000 gallons of aviation fuel in tanks that were located below the deck, and another 255-gallon drums of fuel on the top side of the ship. Keep that in mind for what's going to happen shortly. As they took up anchor and headed toward Nicaragua, the first portion of the journey was down the Mississippi River. (laughs) It started poorly, and it ended even worse. They got going about 3 a.m. in the morning on the night they set sail for Puerto Cabezas. But soon thereafter, something seemed to be wrong. 
The engines were turning at a high revolution, but the ship itself was cruising at only about four knots, or less than half the ten-knot speed that the captain expected. Captain Torado thought for sure that they had hit something and that, likely, the propellers were damaged. So they asked the frogmen on board to check it out, and they did. And their dive underneath the boat revealed that two of the three propellers were bent and the props were tangled in wires. The frogmen were able to clear the wires, but the bent props kept the speed of the Rio Escondido to a limp at six knots per hour. It finally arrived in Nicaragua two days late, but soon enough to not delay the entire mission. Unlike the crews of the other Garcia ships, and I'll explain who Garcia is in a minute, the crew of the Escondido was told of the mission once out to sea and on their way to Puerto Cabezas. In another Kabuki Theater moment, the ship's new radios outfitted by the CIA just for this mission, outfitted to ensure proper communication with the other participants in the mission. <laughs> they were so strong that they picked up radio transmissions from cabs in California. Let's take a minute to describe the CIA merchant ships and Navy that were involved, as there is a little bit of colorful history in this story. <laughs> as you might expect, all associated with the Kabuki Theater related to plausible denial. When the time came for the CIA to shop for a Navy, the logical source was the Garcia Line with offices in Havana and at 17 Battery Place in New York City. In 1961, it was a 25-year-old shipping company that was started right after World War II. And it was the only Cuban line still running rice and sugar out of Havana. And its six freighters provided perfect cover. They were suitably unmilitary. They were small, about 2,400 tons apiece. They were slow. <laughs> they were old. They were less than perfectly scrubbed and not in the best repair. Their captains were Spaniards who had no love for Castro. Neither had the owners, Alfredo Garcia, then 83 years old, and his five sons. The family's political sympathies had been tested. Despite the great tasks and risks, one of the ships, the Rio Escondido, had been exfiltrating already anti-Castro leaders that the CIA wanted to secretly move out of Cuba. The company's most active and enterprising partner was Eduardo Garcia, and he was summoned to a meeting with two CIA agents in an Eastside New York apartment. It was the first of many such encounters for Eduardo in many apartments in New York and Washington, and even once in a public park. The government men never identified themselves, except by first names, and warned him never to discuss anything over the telephone. These agents told Eduardo that they wanted to charter his ships and that the vessels were to go to New Orleans, Mobile, and other American ports to be loaded with ammunition, aviation gasoline, and other supplies, and then to an unnamed Central American port to take on men, and then from there on to an unnamed Cuban port. Eduardo listened quietly. He was a heavy-set, dark-skinned man filled with contempt for 
Castro, and communism. He was nimble on his feet and with his speech. When Eduardo listened to a business proposition, he was totally without expression, and he sat as impassively as one could. He was fascinated by the CIA men's proposition, and he decided he would not hold out for a profit. He did not, however, want his ships sunk. He was very clear, and he was stern when he said he would not make his ships available unless he knew how the landings were going to be protected. He sounded as if he meant it. His briefers then revealed that there would be an air cover and destroyers with guns of 20-mile range. The planes would be American combat aircraft. All Castro planes would be destroyed. An American Navy ship would bring landing craft to pick up the troops from the Garcia freighters and then carry them to the beaches. The CIA men were very enthusiastic and pointed out that no landings staged by Americans had ever failed. Eduardo was convinced. He agreed to furnish his ships for direct operating costs of $600 per day per ship, plus the cost of fuel, food, and personnel. No papers were ever signed to document the deal. Eduardo and his family did not think this was necessary because they were dealing with the United States government in a tremendous undertaking. Eduardo liked the agents he was dealing with, and he trusted implicitly their word. It may not be surprising to you that the Joint Chiefs of Staff were left in the dark about the CIA's expansion into the Navy's amphibious warfare business. General Lyman Lemnitzer nor Denny Dennison were made aware. When they finally did get a briefing, after Bissell appeared in Dennison's office and gave the Admiral a sketchy outline of the project, Dennison would describe his reaction as appalled. There were so many questions that were left unanswered. What were his own responsibilities to protect the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo? How was the Cuban population going to react? What about evacuating U.S. nationals from Cuba? Dennison suspected the CIA had never considered such details. His fury did not abate, and on December 20, 1960, he sent Washington 119 questions about the operation. Only 12 were ultimately answered. Let's turn now for a second and give just a few more details of the Garcia merchant ships. There were five Garcia merchant ship freighters used in the operation, chartered by the CIA, so to speak. They were all outfitted with anti-aircraft guns. Four of the freighters were tasked with carrying the 1,400 troops close to shore and delivering the munitions and supplies that would establish the beachhead and sustain it. Those four included the Rio Escondido, which you just heard about, the Houston, the Carib, and the Atlantico. Each of the ships had a code name, and respectively, they were Bolina, the Aguja, the Sardinia, and the Tiburon. The fifth freighter, Lake Charles, was located with follow-up supplies and some Operation 40 infiltration personnel. The freighters sailed under Liberian flags. You have probably heard of the term Operation 40 before, but We've not used it often. Just another pseudonym for the work group and project tasked with regime change to unseat Castro in Cuba, including the Bay of Pigs planning and assassination missions as well. We'll say more about that in future episodes. But I digress, so 
let's get back to the CIA's Navy. There were other smaller craft involved as well in the CIA's secret Navy that undertook the mission and landed on the shores of Cuba. And they were primarily related to the landings on the beaches. Let's describe them here. Accompanying the merchant ships were two what's known as LCIs, or Landing Craft Infantry, as the acronym is defined. And they were outfitted with heavy armament, and their names were the Blogger, codename Marsopa, and the Barbara J, which had a codename of Barracuda. Both of these ships were World War II stock, and they were designed to offload large numbers of infantry in an amphibious assault. These ships were sailing under Nicaraguan flags. The Blogger was effectively the command ship for the Cuban Expeditionary Force, or CEF. We'll use those two terms along with the term brigadistas interchangeably in this discussion. As I said, the Blogger was effectively the command ship, and on it was Grayston or Gray Lynch. Aboard the other LCI or landing craft was Robert Rip Robertson. These two men were the two CIA operatives and case officers on the ground, so to speak, that went ashore with the Cuban troops. Both had colorful backgrounds, especially Rip Robertson, but we'll leave that to you for an extracurricular read. As long as we are talking about the details of the Navy, let's finish out the discussion of the United States naval fleet vessels that were involved. We've already mentioned the carrier Essex. There were seven Navy destroyers in total, including the USS Bosch, the USS Beale, the USS Conway, the USS Coney, the USS Eaton, the USS Murray, and the USS Waller. There were other U.S. naval ships as well, including the USS San Marcos, which was a landing ship dock that carried three landing craft utilities, or LCUs, which could accommodate the brigade's M41 Walker Bulldog tanks, and there were four landing craft vehicles personnel, LCVP. These were used to offload the men. All of these were designed to get the men and the cargo onto the beach swiftly and efficiently. The San Marcos had sailed from Vicas Island near Puerto Rico. At Point Zulu, the seven Cuban Expeditionary Force ships sailed north without the United States Navy escorts, except for San Marcos. They all continued until the seven landing craft were unloaded when they reached the point just outside the five-kilometer or three-mile Cuban territorial limit. The U.S. Navy Task Force Group 81.8 had already assembled off the Cayman Islands, and it was commanded by Rear Admiral John E. Clark, one of the admirals that we mentioned earlier. And, of course, he was on board the USS aircraft carrier, the USS Essex. Plus, there was a helicopter assault carrier, the USS Boxer, and several other destroyers, including the USS Hank, the USS John W. Weeks, the USS Purdy, the USS Wren, and two submarines, the USS Cobbler and the USS Threadfin. The United States Navy Command and Control Ship, the USS Northampton, and another carrier, the USS Shangri-La, were also reportedly active in the Caribbean at the time. You may wonder why I'm giving you all of these details, details about the ships. 
If you are a Kennedy assassination researcher exploring conspiracy and exploring the real possibility about whether his assassination might have represented a coup d'etat, well, one of the core premises around that idea involves the extent to which there was an ire in the military that accumulated over these series of critical confrontations, beginning with the Bay of Pigs, and how this disdain for Kennedy and his decision-making might have bled into some of the more radical minds within the military-industrial complex and elsewhere. I am not trying to imply anything here. This point is brought up for context. To have a deeper understanding of the scale of the military might that was assembled for this mission, and what it meant, and how it was perceived by individuals in the know, in the context of the moment. And the point is that we assembled an incredible military might right off the shores of Cuba, and yet they sat there, neutered and helpless. Helpless as a small group of Cubans, the exile invasion force, the Cuban expeditionary force, was either slaughtered or captured on the beach like the flick of a flea off the arm of a man. This United States naval flotilla, which was equipped with amazing firepower and that had Marines on board as well, could have taken over Cuba sometime between lunch and dinner that day. And I suspect they could have done it eating a sandwich in one hand and using a finger on the other to perhaps just gently push a button or two in the military apparatus that they had at hand. But instead, here they stood in complete abeyance. I'm not a military man, and I still can't even imagine how frustrating that was to the fighting men and women of our armed forces and to the top U.S. naval and military executives in the thick of that event over those few days. Men who surely knew how foolhardy the whole thing had become or was about to become, as we will detail in a moment, and at that moment, even though the Russians were not in a position to do anything about it, even though they had already seen the train coming down the tracks and warned Kennedy in the days before the invasion, and of course, as we know, they correctly predicted the moves that the U.S. was making, and they used it in the aftermath to arm Cuba with nuclear weapons and force the showdown that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, <laughs> Speaking of a sandwich, it's getting late, and I'm getting hungry. So I think it is time for a sandwich. And so let's take a pause, and we'll finish the invasion in episode 147, the next episode. Come join us as we finish out one of the most amazing stories of the 1960s. Thank you for listening to episode 146 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.